This is Slack and Slash Productions. Bringing you an extra special bonus Strahdcast, a fast cast. This time featuring yours truly, Scott the DM, and nobody else. Hello, gamers. It's Scott, the DM, and I'm checking in to talk a little bit about the Curse of Strahd campaign for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. I am using the legendary edition of Curse of Strahd from Beetle and Grimm's, and uh, also drawing upon the uh, Curse of Strahd revamped edition, which Wizards of the Coast published in 2020, and then some third-party publishers' materials as well, which I'll give credit to uh, whenever I can. What I want to do in this is talk a little bit about some of the changes that I've made to the campaign as written so far. And we're only uh, a little ways into the campaign when I record this. So my PCs have gone up to third level, which is actually the level that you start at unless you want to include some of the introductory bonus appendix materials. I'll talk about that. But first I want to focus on some changes I made before the campaign even began. Uh, I should say before I go further that there are spoilers for the Curse of Strahd campaign in this recording, so if you want to play it and you want to go in blind, then you should probably stop listening. First of all, I want to talk about character origins. Now, there's a tradition in Ravenloft that goes all the way back to I-6, the original Ravenloft module 1983, and the idea is that the players are drawn in, or the characters rather drawn in, to Barovia using this magical extraplanar mist, and then they're trapped there by the mists as well. It's one of the central components. The the aesthetic of Ravenloft is defined by these mists. And the nice thing about this for DMs is that they can then draw in PCs from anywhere. So if you've got a third-level PC that's just kicking around the Forgotten Realms, or you've got some other PC that's in Kryn, you can just suck them all up with the mist and drop them in Barovia. So it's been around for ages. It's not a bad system, uh, but I find it's lacking because once they're there, the character's primary motivation is now to escape. It's to get out of Barovia. So it's not about saving Barovia from the curse of Strahd. It's about saving themselves. And I don't feel that that's a very strong motivation. Uh, I mean, obviously a lot of campaigns work just fine with that, save your own skin kind of thing, Uh, but I like heroes, and even in a gothic horror campaign, I want my PCs to feel like they can and should accomplish something heroic. So there's a couple of other ways that other hooks that that Curse of Strahd provides. You can actually be lured in there by Strahd. I didn't really like that either. Uh, what I wanted were just sort of ordinary folks who were forced to become heroes in order to try and uh, relieve Barovia of this curse. And to do that, they needed to be invested in Barovia, uh, and 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 also invested in the Barovia that was. So just having them born and growing up in and around Barovia during Strahd's curse didn't cut it for me either. That way they'd have no point of comparison. They'd have no juxtaposition between the cursed Barovia and what it could be. So my first big change, my my risky change, was to begin the campaign 500 years before 
the adventure was to take place, and then to contrive some magical means to put my PCs to sleep for five centuries so that when they awoke, they saw the differences between the fairy tale Barovia of old and this modern, cursed, corrupted Barovia. That increases their stakes. It means that now they can fight to get their old home back. They'll never see their families again, they can't go back in time, but they can reclaim Barovia from what it has become. So I had to do a little tweaking with the timeline in order to achieve this. I wanted them to start in a, a world that knew Strahd, so Strahd was the king, but he hadn't yet descended into undeath. He hadn't succumbed to this curse. And this also gave them a little bit of an advantage uh, because they have some knowledge of Barovia's history. In fact, they even have some knowledge, although they don't know it yet, that can be useful for them in, in fighting Strahd. Finally, it gives me the DM an advantage because there's still a learning curve. Even though they're from Barovia, they're not from Barovia. And therefore, they have to ask lots of questions to figure out how this new world works. That's important for me. And, and really important in a gothic horror campaign is that they're not blasé about the horror, right? If they were born in Barovia, if this is the only thing they've ever known, then... Who cares? Like, oh, great, zombies, whatever. I want my PCs to have a chance to react to the horrors of Barovia in an authentic way, because thats I think that's part of the fun. Your mileage may vary, of course. So my choice there was to make them basically OG Barovians and to slumber for five centuries and then awake to see this massive problem, this, this corruption that needed curing. How do I do this? That was my next question. And I scoured the Curse of Strahd campaign for hints of what sort of magic might allow this to take place. Um, I wanted to avoid destiny in my campaign. I, I use that a lot. I think a lot of DMs do. It's part of, it's central to fantasy tropes. So a lot of players don't mind being told that they are the chosen ones, that they've been brought here by fate or by gods in order to, you know, rid the land of a, a scourge, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I wanted to avoid that in this campaign. I'm, I'm sort of sick of it personally, and I like the idea that they, they, they've been dropped here, but through no real fault of their own, like, they're, they're not the chosen ones in the sense that they have this grand destiny. They have to choose to, to, to live up to it, to arise to that destiny. And therefore, I didn't want some god to go, oh, these three must slumber for 500 years, and then they can uh, fight Strahd. Uh, and I didn't want it to be Strahd either, or any of the dark powers that he's affiliated with. So when I looked around the campaign setting, the only other power that I found that could conceivably do this, that wasn't a god, that wasn't Strahd, that wasn't an evil force like Strahd, was Argonvost. Argonvost is a dragon who dies before the campaign begins, uh, both in the campaign as written and in my case as well. He died fighting Strahd. He was the protector. This, this silver dragon protected Barovia, and Strahd brought his armies in and, and kicked the dragon's ass. Now, that makes it hard for me to use his magic, but I was able to contrive a kind of magical trap I wanted also, incidentally, to give my PCs a bit of a leg up, because Barovia is tough, and if they're starting at first level, they need all the help they can get. So I wanted the, them to receive a boon of some kind, some magic items, maybe a little bit of extra money at the start of the campaign, so that they didn't really have to struggle as much. And it made sense to me to tie these two things together, so they felt like, okay, we got 
cursed and, and, and sort of put to sleep for five centuries, but at least we got this loot out of the deal. So what I had them do was stumble upon a uh, cache of treasure that Argenvost had left behind in the last days of the war against Strahd. And I tailored the items in this cache to suit my PCs. You know, you can uh, supply whatever you think the PCs might need in this case if you were doing something similar. And there was also a, a big chest of silver coins. And at the very bottom of this silver chest, it took them a while to find it, I put a letter. It's one of the handouts that comes with Curse of Strahd, and it's a note from Argenvost himself. Um, in context, it's supposed to be part of his journal, um, but uh, I, I took it out and sort of made it into a, an actual letter. Uh, in other words, you know, whosoever finds this silver and these magic items, um, keep fighting uh, on my behalf. That made more sense to me, incidentally, than the letter or the journal entry itself, uh, which the PCs don't find until they are well into exploring Argon Vostholt. Um, it's, it's buried so deep, and by the time they find it, they're almost certainly going to know about Argon Vost already. But here's a, an early clue. It gives them a sense of a potential ally. Argon Vost himself is long dead, but his magic perseveres. And so it's something that they could conceivably explore. And, and the, the module, the campaign, does set up the, the potential for that if you go through the right steps. So once they wake up and they finally figure out that it was Argenvost's leftover magic that put them to sleep, um, not as a punishment for stealing the silver, but as a kind of failsafe, are you worthy of this silver? Uh, go to sleep until my agents can find you and assess you, and then maybe you'll be worthy. So that was the concept behind that. The next changing I made to the campaign had to do with the Taroka reading, and I've talked about this in other podcasts. Uh, the Taroka reading is part of what makes the Curse of Strahd campaign so interesting because it creates this variability, this random element. Uh, where are these treasures hidden? Who is on your side? Where can you find Strahd? All that stuff, the DM doesn't know it until this reading takes place. But then the campaign as written turns around and says, you should totally do this reading before the campaign begins. Well, okay, and don't show it to the PCs. Uh, wait, what? So you've got this really cool, interactive, visually stimulating system for determining where treasure is, but you're not supposed to show it to the players? That seemed weird to me. And then they kind of backtrack and they say, well, okay, when the players meet, this PC, or possibly that PC, uh, NPC, sorry, when they meet Madame Ava or they meet um, uh, Davenir, then they can get a Taroka reading, and then that'll replace the other Taroka reading that you did secretly instead. Uh, that's that's weird and too much work for a DM, and, and it kind of creates the potential to contradict itself, because if you happen to have looked in one of those places where the treasure is, and then the reading changes, and then, yeah, anyway, it's, uh, I didn't, I didn't buy it. Um, that that system, incidentally, goes again way back to I six, the original module. Um, but I don't like it, so I just didn't do the Taroka reading at, off the top. I didn't do one in private. I waited until they had a chance to receive one from an NPC. But I increased the number of potential NPCs who could provide a Taroka reading, so that they didn't have to wait quite so long. So in my case, when they woke up, the first NPC that they met after being put to sleep for five centuries was a member of the Vistani troop, an NPC whom I'd invented. But the idea was that if they followed her, 
she would lead them back to the Vistani camp, and then they'd have a chance to meet my version of Madame Ava uh, and get that Taroka reading. If they didn't follow that NPC and instead went back to the town of Barovia, where they come from, then they're likely to meet Irina first. And I decided that Irina also has a Taroka deck, and so she was the one that ended up providing that reading for them. It still took them a little while before they settled down and, and, and received the reading, but that was okay for me because I didn't need to know where those things were located until that took place. Saved me some effort. So once the reading was done, mostly I kept the, the, the results intact. I did change a couple of details about the reading results. Um, one of them allows you to randomly choose an ally for the PCs who can help them in the fight against Strahd, and I just didn't like all their options. There were a few of the options in there that seemed kind of weird and, and random and, and unexciting, honestly. It was just a personal choice. Like, why Periwimple, the simpleton who works at the mercantile shop in Barovia, would it be a, a, a worthwhile ally to accompany the PCs, like, all the way through the campaign? Just didn't seem useful to me. So I changed a few of them, and that immediately bit me in the butt because they drew one of my alternatives. They drew a card called the Seer, and in my version, the Seer is Babalisaga. She's kind of like Strahd's nursemaid, and she's another one of the very powerful figures behind the scenes. This works well for me for a few other reasons. I, I did a bit of tweaks to Strahd's backstory to make Babalisaga a bit more prominent in it, um, but I also have no idea how the PCs are going to recruit her as an ally to defeat Strahd when she's all about protecting Strahd right now. Uh, so I kind of dug a narrative hole for myself there, and I'm not really sure how to fill it in just yet. Um, but it's going to be a while before they meet Babalasaga, so I have time to figure out what they might be able to offer her that would be worthwhile, that would give her the, the excuse to turn on Strahd. We'll see. So... Those are the changes that I made kind of before the campaign got going. The first installment of the campaign, uh, which you can hear on our podcast, uh, Slack and Slash, it was all about getting them into that the cave where the cache of silver was and putting them to sleep. And I had to fudge the dice a little bit because I didn't want any of them to make their saving throws. But then they slept for five centuries and woke up going, like, genuinely going, what is going on? What has happened to us? Which I love. Uh, you know, these are old players. They have a pretty good idea of what Ravenloft's all about, but they were still thrown for a loop. And then I wanted a series of encounters that kind of ramped up the horror, that, that introduced them bit by bit to what they could come to expect in this new Barovia. So their first encounter was at the Ivlich River Crossroads. And in the rules as written, the Ivlich River Crossroads doesn't really feature a combat encounter. It's more of a sort of um, uh, atmospheric encounter, if you will. Uh, basically, there's a, a, a gibbet there, like a, a hangman's noose. There's a, a body hanging from the hangman's noose. And then when they look at it, one of them... One of the PCs, you decide which one, suddenly it looks like them. Um, one random character sees him or herself hanging from the gallows. Uh, but it doesn't actually do anything. So I just replace it with a zombie. Um, these are farm boys or, you know, villagers who have never encountered the undead before. It makes sense to start them out with a zombie. So, you know, the 
dead guy in the gallows attacks them, and they fight and beat him. Not a tremendous encounter, but a great little stop on the way back to the town, because the rest of their journey back to town was just, they were terrified, like things could jump out at them from any direction. And then they met some werewolves, and the werewolves came courtesy of something in uh, Beetle and Grimm's Legendary Edition. Not sure if I have it in front of me here, but it's one of a number of samples, uh, bonus encounters that Beetle and Grimm's included. Um, they recognized that uh, you're going to need a few encounters to get your PCs up to third level, so they wrote a few extra ones. And this one revolves around the burial of Irina's father the late Burgomaster. Basically, they go and try to bury him in the churchyard, and Irina tags along, and then some werewolves attack. And they've also introduced a, a new vampire, or vampire spawn, named Ingrid. So I broke this encounter up a little bit. I brought in some werewolves first. Uh, these dudes are still first level. They can't deal with a lot all at once. But they fought off these werewolves. They had the silver weapons that I'd given them. That gave them a leg up. And then rather than bringing Ingrid in immediately, I figured, okay, Ingrid's out there somewhere, but she doesn't know about the PCs. She doesn't know that these new heroes have arrived and that they have these silver weapons. And, you know, she's just chilling somewhere. But one of the werewolves breaks off and goes to tell her that, and that buys the PCs some time to recuperate. Or it would, except that they then open the hatch to the basement of the church, and there's another vampire in there, uh, Doru the Vampire Spawn. So they fight him. And then they retreat to the Burgomaster's mansion and eventually end up fighting Ingrid as well. The point of all of this is to stretch out some of the initial encounters, not only so that the PCs don't die, uh, but also so they can get a, a little flavor of the horror bit by bit. Gothic horror is very much about creeping dread, and if you just throw everything at the wall all at once, there's none of that sense. There's no dread, there's just panic and roll dice as much as you can. And I wanted to draw the dread out, so I, I'm, I'm making some of those basic encounters take a little longer. Ingrid, in fact, is going to become a, a recurring villain, uh, for a little while at least. So those were changes that I made uh, just to kind of ease the PCs into the world of Barovia. Not major changes. It's almost like random encounters, but I don't really believe in random encounters. I'd rather pick the encounters that seem uh, right in the moment. Finally, uh, they got to Death House. Now, Death House is a, a new addition to 5th edition. Uh, that is, it's something that didn't exist in any other versions of this campaign. Uh, they put it in its own appendix. They say, this is for 1st to 3rd level PCs. Here's how you get them into Death House. Uh, here's all the stuff that goes on. It's not a bad little uh, self-contained adventure. It's got a couple of uh, connections to, to Strahd as well, so it's not totally throwaway. I wasn't sure, to be honest, if I wanted my PCs to go through it or not. Um, so rather than use the rather uninspired hook um, of having the mists push them there uh, all the way into Death House, I decided to wait and see if there was a hook that might work for my PCs. In other words, I kept this sort of floating hook. I, I was waiting to see whether or not they, they wanted to go and, and, and explore Death House. Uh, it was always there, I just didn't have a, a specific hook yet. But by the time they had returned from their cache, and they got back to Barovia, and they got settled in, it was pl pretty clear to me what the values of these PCs were. One of their values is treasure. Surprise, surprise. Specifically, that cache of silver. 
and and my barbarian in particular, he kind of role played this. He like glommed onto the silver chest as this one real thing in this world of of, of phantasmagoric terror. He's like, I know this silver is real. I must protect it. I must protect it. So bastard that I am, the moment they turned their back on that silver chest, it was gone. Some Barovian thieves sneak into the Burgomaster's mansion, they take the chest of silver. This could have been a real throwaway side plot, but if they're going to take it away and they're going to hide the silver from these powerful, seemingly powerful PCs, I decide they the thieves can go and hide out in Death House. Like, nobody's going to follow them there. That's a perfect place. And it turned out to be a perfect place, because as soon as they discovered their silver was gone, they wanted to go. And I had the other NPCs, Irina and Ismark, saying, no, 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 you don't want to go to Death House, man. Death House, man. It's right there on the title, Death House. You don't want to go in there. But the PCs wanted their money back, so of course they're going to go in. They go in, they get their treasure, the two thieves have murdered each other already because Death House messed with their minds, so I didn't even have to deal with that as an encounter, it was just purely a hook. But it worked exactly right, and because of the way Death House is designed, once you're in, you don't get out again until you have sought out the the, the monster in the basement and, and rid the house of its curse. So that pretty much played out as it was supposed to once they were in there. I, I changed some things in Death House around as well, just circumstantially. Like, you know, again, when PCs focus, when they zero in on something, make that something important. Give Reward them with it. Even if the reward is, ah, it's a mimic and it's attacking me. Like, that counts as a reward for players who invest their attention in something. Um, the same thing went for uh, Room 35, which is... Uh, almost a kind of throwaway room at the bottom of Death House. It's called the Reliquary, and in The Rules is Written, there's a bunch of stuff in it that eh, doesn't really make a lot of sense. There's like a folded cloak made from stitched ghoul skin, a bag full of bat guano, Ooh. a shrunken shriveled head of a halfling. These are just random culty items. Beetle and Grimm didn't change this. It's the same in theirs. But I got from a third-party supplement that was called Fleshing Out Death House. Uh, it's written by Mandy Maud. And uh, they replaced it. Mandy Maud was like, why should we have these items that have no value, you can't sell them, and they have no connection to the rest of the campaign? So they very cleverly replaced each and every one of those reliquary items with ones that have some kind of significance elsewhere in the campaign. And when the PCs got there, rather than just collecting all this stuff, I waited to see which one they were going to zero in on. And the priest was like, oh, this black uh, vine laurel leaf seems really interesting, and he decided to take that along. So these choices the PCs make tell me what I should emphasize down the road. Now they've got a connection through that particular item to another encounter. I also created a link to the PC's backstory. When I sent them into Death House, I decided that that house existed five centuries ago, and it used to belong to somebody else, but that somebody else, that NPC who's now long dead, had a, a connection to the PCs. And in fact, there was a, a, an item, a magical item, that the PCs knew or suspected was still in the house and were able to recover it. So there's a kind of personal reward for going through that as well. Uh, I'm not going to have as many opportunities to do that when they leave the town of Barovia and they go elsewhere in the campaign, because they don't have ties to Valaki or to Kresk in the same way that they do to the town of Barovia. So I wanted to make it worth their while in a sense. And now they've got one extra thing that they can hang on to that reminds them of home, of the good days, of you know the time before Strahd. It becomes symbolic of their quest.
And that's really what you're trying to do all the time, is create symbolic items or symbolically charged encounters that remind your players of why they're doing this in the first place. That's all I've changed. <laughs> no, it's that's not true. That's most of what I've changed so far, but I'll probably record some more of these later on once they've advanced in levels and I've made other changes on the go. Thanks for listening. Strawcast is produced by Slack and Slash Productions out of Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, also known as Unamagi, the unceded and ancestral territory of the Mi'kmaq people. It's based on The Curse of Strahd Revamped, published by Wizards of the Coast, as well as The Curse of Strahd Legendary Edition, published by Beetle and Grimms. But the participants are not affiliated with either company, and we do not seek to profit off this podcast. You can get in touch with us and find more of our podcasts at slackandslashpod.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. And you can subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, you name it. Be sure to leave a review if you like what we do. Until next time, be brave and shine bright. Shine bright.